0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Can you dig it. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It is Friday morning. Uh my wife has left town. She's not left me. She's left town. She's gonna go spend some uh in the weekend of the fall br- fall break with my daughter. Um they're doing adventures in in Oregon, I believe. Um I'm pouring coffee, so I know some people don't like the sound of that, but I think it's a uh, I think it's fairly euphonious. It's a big cup. Um so, where to begin? I guess I should start with some uh I don't know, some news stuff, whatever. Uh yesterday was the last least for now. Public uh, January sixth hearing. I watched most of it. Um I had to like um go do this podcast thing for uh AI and a former dispatch intern. Um so I missed some, but I caught the beginning and I caught all the salient points. Um I am I'm nothing if not transparent to my dear listeners. It's weird. So the one thing, I, I, and I, I haven't had a chance to sort of read up um, on why this isn't bigger news, but I thought the most interesting thing, I mean, the footage about the politicians hunkering down and um, trying to deal with the day is compelling and it's interesting, but it doesn't really advance the story very much. We kind of knew that they were behind the scenes doing all that. I kind of feel like I f- never knew or f- got. I mean, I, the, this, this thing that Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger went on about, about how Trump immediately signed orders after he lost the election to withdraw all U S forces from Somalia and Afghanistan. And I need to know more about that. Um, and what was weird about it all was that the committee just basically used it as a, Timestamp device, right? To establish that Trump knew he lost. The argument being that um, that's not the kind of thing he would have done if he thought he was about to commence a second term. Um, That's the kind of thing you do when you're heading out the door and you want to get sort of your last priorities done or screw with the next administration or whatever. Um, And I take the point about it being a you know, establishing state of mind, I I find that this debate about establishing Trump's state of mind is really just incredibly fraught um, because we've known this about the guy for a very long time, that he can convince himself of all sorts of BS, self-serving BS. I mean, I remember interviews with him uh, early on where, you know, he was convinced that online polls were accurate and that he was ahead in all the polls because the, these, you know, just totally scientifically garbage online polls said, you know, run by Breitbart or somebody uh, um, that were basically just, you know, polling an audience of Trump superfans uh, that these were reflective of the real world. Um, I mean, he's, he's legendary uh, in political circles for telling people that his, he would call his ratings for the apprentice polls and say that he was number one in the polls because his ratings for the apprentice were number one in that time slot. Um, he said in a deposition famously said in a deposition, you know, that his net worth depends entirely upon how he feels at any on any given day. Um I mean, in other my my point is, and we, maybe we can return to this later, I don't know, but, you know, my point is, is that he's mercurial, he's self-delusional, um, he's probably the greatest living avatar of the George Costanza rule, which is this, you know, it's kind of this, you know, this it, deep philosophical contradiction where George Costanza says, you know, the trick to good lying is, if you believe it, it's not a lie. Right. I mean, he convinces himself, he spent his entire career saying, what do I have to do to put you in this condo today? Um, he's a, he's a huckster, you know, uh, condo salesman, um, um, at scale. And so anyway, my point is, is like, I understand with the January 6th committee like legally it matters a lot. You know, the men's rea stuff matters a lot. Um, but you know, this is a guy who can, work himself up to convince himself of um all sorts of things that he wants to believe for short or long periods of time and so i i I understand why the committee i understand why like it really matters to the georgia case you know the with the phone call with the brad raffensperger phone call you know his defense trump's defense will be look as i say on the call i won i won I won a lot more than the eleven thousand you know two hundred and whatever votes that I'm asking for. Um, so there's nothing wrong with me asking for them to find at least some of the votes I won fair and square. It's a state of mind thing, right um, and and so I just think it's a total rabbit hole to go down. Um, it's sort of like you know talking about how you have to establish the laws of gravity and, and earth logic when you go into Dr. Strange's multiverse where he can make, you know, everything into a Dada painting. It's just, it's, 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 it's a morass. It's a Rorschach test for all sorts of people. Meanwhile, the fact that he wanted to sort of, in a matter, in a fit of spite, pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan is pretty fascinating. And, you know, again, I need to, I need to read up more on it, um, uh, but it kind of blows up, a lot of people's useful narratives about a lot of things. I mean, we all knew that he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. He, he and Pompeo had worked out this, I think deeply flawed kind of nonsense plan about, uh, eventually getting out. Um, um, but if he could have figured out how to work the bureaucracy the correct way and didn't get the pushback from the Pentagon that he got, if the kids in the year version of this stuff is real, it's pretty fascinating that he wanted to get out of Afghanistan without, with, with even less planning um, than Biden did. And um, I wonder if, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's less to it than what this sounds like. Um, But it kind of makes me wonder whether or not there's sort of a, there is a bipartisan interest in not exploring this issue too deeply because Af- the withdrawal from Afghanistan was uh, a disaster for Biden and for the United States of America and for the Afghan people, I would argue. Um, um, and arguing that, oh, Trump would have done the same thing um, helps nobody, you know? Um, or maybe there's a simpler explanation for it. But anyway, I I, I definitely think it is worth a deeper dive. Um, and I was kind of surprised by how Little attention it got in the summaries. Um, you know, I went back and forth between all three networks, and obviously there's always a possibility of missing something, but all the recaps yesterday and that I heard today don't even mention it. I, I just think that's interesting. Um, the inflation number yesterday, very bad. Inflation is bad. Um, I'm not going to get into the weeds on inflation stuff because um, there's nothing new to say except inflation is bad um, and that it may or may not be going away at some point in the near or long term. So there's your specificity for you. Um, But I do think it's interesting um, how in the home stretch, all the Republican candidates seem to be focusing on crime over economy and inflation um obviously some of it has to do with the fact that crime is rising and that people don't like crime but i suspect that part of it is also that um you know i had a lot of fun making fun of rick perlstein's argument that uh popular concerns over he i'll back up rick perlstein um historian um very left wing um Wrote this piece, I don't know, two years ago now? A year, uh, can't it be two years, a little over a year ago, maybe. Um, arguing against, I believe, stuff he had written in one of his own books in a previous time. Uh, but he had argued that he's come to the conclusion that the panic over inflation in the 70s that did so much for the rise of conservatism um, really had nothing to do with economics and was really a moral panic, right? It was about the decline in, um, in standards and, and the, the changing understanding of sexuality and women and feminism and all of this stuff. And inflation became kind of a metaphor for that stuff. And I think that's wrong. I mean, I think that's just flatly wrong. Inflation was a real salient political issue for both parties. Uh, Both parties um, were completely knocked off their game trying to figure out how to deal with inflation, how to talk with inflation. Um, uh, The American people, particularly with the one-two punch of the energy crisis, um, were not well pleased by inflation. But I think he kind of gets the causation backwards and he's got a point if you look at it from a different angle insofar as when inflation is running wild, um, it makes, it, it, it puts you in a mood where you think just life is out of control, right? It puts you, it's like having a fever. It, when you have a fever, all the other stuff hurts more too. Um, you just, you feel it more, you feel the aches, all that. And I think that when you have inflation, Um, and you don't know where it's going to end, you have this sort of sense of, you know, what was the movie? Koyaanis Gatsi, you know, life out of balance. Um, It makes it difficult to plan. It makes it feel like you're, it's harder to keep your head above water. And I suspect that one of the reasons why crime is um, such a salient issue going into the home stretch is that crime is an interesting way, is is a way to provide a more visible, visible incarnation of that feeling of that feeling of fear. Um, you can put a face on it in some, you know, cases, I'm sure you can put a race on it. Um, and which I don't condone, but I think it's just something that people do in politics, you know, rightly or wrongly. And I mean, wrongly, I should say. Um, but I think that there's this. deep sense of unease fueled by inflation that makes all of these other feelings of unease or discomfort with the direction of society feel more acute and um so that may be the reason why crime is showing up in the in the focus groups and in the polling and and subsequently in the ads um than you might think um of course crime again i think crime is an entirely legitimate issue in politics um I think it's less of a legitimate issue for in national federal elections uh because Congress and the White House don't have a direct role in fighting crime but you know that chip is sailed and you know you can always turn it into some an argument about funding or whatever so you know last week I wrote I think it was last week I don't know um so I, I you know the New York Times had this uh, gushing review, as did a bunch of other outlets, of this new book, uh, American Midnight, which I'm working my way through. When I in my precious few free moments, it's a source of great frustration. If you don't read the G file, you, you miss this whole thing. So, I, but if you do read the G file, you 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 heard me go through it all before. But as longtime listeners of this podcast, no, I'm not a big fan of Woodrow Wilson, hence the orc music, and I take. A small amount of pride in the fact that I was one of the um, I would say one of the more important voices. I wouldn't say I'm the most important voice or the indispensable voice or um, any of that kind of stuff in certainly in the rights changing of its mind about about Wilson, um, there are other people, um, certainly other you know more straightforward intellectual types who did important work on all that that I learned from in terms of popularizing and sort of getting into the nitty gritty of why Wilson was bad from a conservative perspective. Um, I think I did yeoman work. And if you ever saw Glenn Beck rant about the Wilson years or any of that stuff, I think by his own admission, he got it pretty much all from me. Um, or certainly anybody else he got it from, he got it because I pointed him to those people. Um, I used to joke again I, I there 's there's not much acrimony in, in any of this i mean there 's a little envy, but you know I used to joke that Glenn Beck made more money off of my first book than I did, uh, but he also helped it become a a number one new york Times bestseller, which doesn 't suck either, so I have a certain amount of gratitude for that as well and I remember you know and at the time I got mocked a lot for what people thought was this in, or certainly people on the left thought was an incredibly stupid argument about Woodrow wilson and Let me just make a very brief, two-paragraph, maybe um, explanation of what my argument about Wilson was. He sucked. He was a bad person. Uh, He was obsessed with power above all things. He was a hater. He was very much like a a hater in the way, like Richard Nixon was a hater. Uh, Colonel House, his his sort of Carl Rove type, gave advice to people who wanted to buddy up with Woodrow Wilson. He would say. Find a common hatred, like that's how you get on Wilson's good side. Is start hating on somebody that hate, that will that Wilson hates. But you know that's not right wing or or left wing. There are there are, are arrogant asses across pretty evenly distributed across the ideological spectrum. My my basic case about Wilson it, it is twofold. Um, well maybe three. I, I, I'm trying to avoid falling into this rabbit hole of just you know, wallowing in anti-Wilson stuff. But he was the most racist president of the 20th century. He lamented that the North won the the Civil War. Um, he, he heaped praise on Abraham Lincoln um, uh, for his abuses of presidential powers and abuses of the Constitution and his um, raw naked uh, will to impose his will, political will on the country. Um, he just lamented that, Will's, that that Lincoln was doing it for the wrong reasons, which is just a complete moral inversion of how how we're supposed to think about Abraham Lincoln's excesses. You know, the the argument about Lincoln is uh, rightly that he may have he he may have had to go too far, or he may have had some regrettable excesses in terms of like suspending habeas corpus or censorship and that kind of thing but um this was one of those great examples of sort of ends justifying the means um or at least some means um uh, because he was doing it for such a righteous cause to save the union to end slavery um and wilson's objection was love the abuses of power but i just wish he hadn't abused power to end slavery and and and, and win the civil war and save the union He was a Southern racist, but his racism was much more modern than your typical sort of, you know, cultural reactionary Southern racism. He was a big believer in sort of modern um, race theories. He wasn't the full blown eugenicist some try to turn him into, but he certainly thought eugenics was a legitimate study. He had hired a eugenicist to work for him, I think, when he was the governor of New Jersey. But he's the guy who reimposed, he's the guy who uh uh imposes jim crow in washington d c it's the Wilson administration that invents this idea of requiring a picture with your job applications so people could tell whether or not the applicant was white or black and if they're black they wouldn't get the job. The Dixiecrats wanted him to restore um sort of full blown Jim Crow everywhere and um he he couldn't deliver, but they had every reason to believe that um he was the guy to do it um Wilson despised the uh, the Constitution. I shouldn't say he despised the Constitution. He thought we had outlived the Constitution as written. He was the first president to publicly say it was sort of, um, it had outlived its utility and that we should um, have a more Darwinian understanding of the Bill of Rights. Um, uh, he was total voluptuary of power. When he thought he was going to be Speaker, that could be Speaker of the House. He thought that the House should have the whole... Um, when he thought he could be a legislator, he thought that the legislature should have all the power. When the president seemed more likely, he thought the executive should have all the power. Um, he just liked the idea of having power. Um, okay, so that's the stuff about Wilson, more or less. Again, I can obviously go, go further. Part of my argument in the book was that ideas about despotism, ideas that uh, uh, 19th century Manchester liberalism, i.e. free trade stuff... Um, and antiquated notions about, uh, the, uh, about, about classical liberalism, constitutionalism, democracy. Um, there was a widespread view you can find out, uh, you know, out of the top hundred intellectuals, um, writing about politics and global affairs back then. It would not shock me if 85% of them gave lip service in one way or another to this stuff. You know, George, from George Bernard Shaw to all sorts of socialists, all sorts of nationalists, whatever. Um, it was a very common point of view that um, we needed a new answer to what people called the social question. That uh, industrialization, urbanization, uh, modernization, generally speaking, nationalization, generally speaking, had thrown into doubt or into question the, all the old social arrangements. You had emancipation of, of of various groups all across Europe. You had the sort of retrenchment of monarchy. And so everything was open to question. And this manifested itself in all sorts of different philosophical movements. Um, I'm very partial to Richard Rorty's arguments that, that, that Nietzsche plays a very similar role in European thought to William Jane's in American thought. Um, and that um, the sort of, American pragmatism and European uh, existentialism and, or what, what some people called Nietzsche's philosophizing with a hammer, which is basically just breaking down all the old dogmas, right. And trying to build up um, from the rubble. Uh, this was just in the water all over the place as were ideas like corporatism, as were ideas like despotism to put a fine word on it. Um, socialism obviously was all over the place. And this idea that, um, and so, um, you know, one of the great influences on, on, on America, not to mention on uh, Woodrow Wilson, was Bismarck's uh, what they call top-down socialism. Um, the point of Bismarck's, the reason they call it top-down socialism is that Bismarck crushed a lot of left-wing parties and activists on the ground, but basically gave them what they wanted as a way to placate the middle class and turn the middle class essentially into clients of the state. Um, this was, in many respects, the same vision um, as the New Deal. Uh, certainly the same vision of a lot of Wilson's domestic stuff. Anyway, so I, I, again, I can go on and on. My point is, is that all of this stuff was in the air, is in the water. America's leading progressive intellectuals really believed that what was happening in Europe... Um, particularly the Soviet Union, but also in Italy and um, later in Germany, proved that, you know, this was the wave of the future, which is a phrase that comes from Anne Moreau Lindbergh's book called "Wave of the Future." She coined that phrase. And so there was what I argued a, essentially a fascist moment um, in um, Western civilization, where there was this sort of great turning away from admiration of and defense of liberal democracy. And Wilson was among the first to put it into action under the rubric of war socialism. Um, it's worth remembering, you know, that war, by its own logic, brings out this sort of Spartan response of everybody working together. Um, this is uh, Randolph Bourne's major critique of the American progressives during the war. Um, it's sort of, you know, people like John Dewey who was a protege of William James and arguably the most important American philosopher of the 20th century. Um, Absolutely terrible writer. Um, uh, You know, James had talked about the social benefits of war, right? It causes people to lay down their individuality. It causes people to sort of fall into line, march in step. Uh, This was uh, basically a uh, reframing of William James's argument about the moral equivalent of war, a phrase that he coined. Um, he taught, you know, James, who was a huge influence on American progressives, huge influence on, uh, the new deal, um, uh, from one or two steps removed, I should be fair. Um, also a huge influence on Benito Mussolini, who loved to quote William James all the time. Um, uh, William James believed that, you know, war brought what a, brought out what is best in people. And what he wanted to do was find ways to cultivate that martial spirit without, um, actually killing people. Um, and that's why, that's, that's why you get the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. Uh, its main camp, I think, was called Camp William James. He had he'd written about this. It was like, you know, it was a tree army. You know, where the, it was a forestry service thing where they took these kids from the cities and they, and they basically sent them to military camp. The, the CCC uh, kids woke up to revelry. They went to sleep, the taps. They had to march in formation. They were drilled by, uh, by um, sergeants from the army. They had basically their own version of stars and stripes. Um, and the whole idea was to find the sort of, you know, moral equivalent of war um, way to organize society without actually being at war. And that, those kinds of ideas were everywhere um, in America, in Europe, lots of cross-pollinization, and under Woodrow Wilson during World War I so much alliteration, you had essentially the first, uh, I mean, if you don't want to call it fascist, that's fine. Call it totalitarian, call it you know authoritarian, whatever. But if I described it all to you in the abstract, it'd be very difficult for a serious person to deny that it was, first of all, completely un-American. And second of all, it sounds awfully like uh, life in some sort of uh, authoritarian or totalitarian country. The first propaganda ministry in Western civilization was created um, by uh, the Wilson administration under the guise of this guy, George Creel it was called the public, the committee for public information. They unleashed what they called four minute men who were these people who went out into uh, hotel lobbies, crowds, fairs, wherever um, people uh, gathered and whipped up anti German sentiment and support for the uh, Wilson administration. They would give a little four-minute speeches pretending to just sort of be like normal people, getting people worked up. Wilson censored all sorts of press, closed down all sorts of magazines, put, uh, I've seen numbers all over the place, but thousands of um, political protesters and activists in jail, um, including Eugene V. Debs. Um, uh, the American Protective League, again, numbers on their ranks are all over the place, but, you know, anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000 Um, essentially goons. They were like, you know, uh, Mussolini's fascisti or squadristi or the brown shirts in, in early, uh, you know, thirties Germany. These were thugs and goons. They worked with the FBI, the FBI, or they worked with the federal government. Sometimes they got badges. Um, uh, they helped coordinate, uh, interrogations. They broke up protests. They, um, um, you know, uh, spied on people. Um, they were street goons who were working under the cover of political authority um, for the benefit of, of the Wilson administration. And anyway, so I detailed all of this. I thought I made a, a compelling argument and I know I went longer than two paragraphs, so what are you going to do? Sue me. Um, and, uh, and like, so the New York Times uh, headline on its review of, of liberal fascism was uh, this very snarky, Hyle Woodrow, um, which was this, you know, crappy way of of signaling the, what my argument was silly. And um, my argument wasn't silly. And I took enormous grief from all sorts of parties about all this stuff. Um, and I, look, some of the grief I got, I think I might have deserved, you know, and I certainly understand um, some of the criticisms, but, the, the first four chapters of that book, the historical analysis, I've just never seen anything that really makes me think, oh, I got, it, I got it substantially wrong or I was off base or anything. And so anyway, fast forward to this book, American Midnight, which basically chronicles at greater length um, this Wilson stuff. And it's getting just lavish praise. Now, it may deserve lavish praise as history, that's all fine. I'm not that far into it. And I know this stuff so well that it's difficult for me to... Um, be unjaundiced about it, or, or, or unbiased about it. But, um, what is annoy? what annoys me and what I wrote about last week was this, this assertion that like, finally someone is telling this untold story of what happened under Wilson. And they make it, it's all this passive voice stuff that like, somehow this um Forgotten chapter as people keep calling it, as I think even the author um this guy hotchild calls it Adam um, um it wasn 't so much forgotten as it was covered up and i 'm not i 'm not i 'm not alluding to the, some vast you know evil conspiracy where everything just gets um you know where people break into the you know the headquarters of the textbook companies and, you know, and rewrite the file or something like that, or, you know, but someone dropped from the ceiling like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible and, and stole the chapters on Woodrow Wilson um, like it was the knock list. I'm just saying that like establishment liberalism um, with the cooperation of a lot of parties, because everyone was sort of embarrassed by a lot of these things, just sort of um, memory hold this stuff lots of, lots of people have pointed this stuff out. It's just that it was relegated to crankery by the sort of keepers of the established narrative. And, uh, that bothers me, you know, that, that really does vex me. I don't know that there's any recourse or anything like that. It's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I've suffered or anything, but this, um, newfound sort of, isn't it brave and courageous and long overdue to tell the truth about this guy um, and about this to- this period in American history, um, that shtick I just have no patience for, um, even if it's sincere. And I understand for a lot of people it's sincere. I mean, I cannot tell you, as you can tell, I'm mildly obsessed with this stuff, how many people I've had this conversation with on a one-on-one basis where I've gone through in even greater detail what I just went through with you, course, apps. And people are shocked to hear it. You know, I mean, like I remember uh, my poor, poor daughter, you know, when they covered this period in school, she was like, yeah, we're doing, you know, Versailles and the 14 points. And I asked her, what did you do, the Pomerades?" And she said, oh yeah, we talked about that a little bit. Um, and so like, I was like, and she was like, but I got to write this essay. And I was like, okay, well, here's what they're looking for you to say. Here's what, you know, here's the answer. Here's the official answer as the keepers of these textbooks and I would walk her through what I know about that stuff. And then I would say, and I want to be very clear. If you say the stuff I'm about to tell you, you'll probably get a worse grade and you'll probably have to like provide 10 times as many sources to back up what you're saying as you would have to, if you just regurgitate what you're expected to hear. And then I would walk her through, you know, you know, the guy who was sent to jail for making a documentary about the, uh, the American revolution that, because it depicted the British who are our allies in a bad light, or the guy who was, um, shot in the back at a baseball game, uh, because he refused to stand for the pledge of allegiance and the jury let him off. Um, I don't I'm even sure if uh, that, there's so many of these sorts of horrible jingoistic cases. Um, I'm not even sure if that one went to a jury trial. Regardless, people were not punished for vigilante violence at the time. Um, there was a guy who said that Vladimir Lenin was the brainiest guy in the world. And I think he got six months in jail. He was certainly prosecuted for thought crimes. Uh, the German language was essentially criminalized in the United States. Um, anyway, you can go down a very long list and all this stuff happened. It, ha- and whenever this, it's one of the frustrating things in the old books about Wilson is like when, whenever this stuff starts to happen, Wilson just kind of vanishes from the narrative. And it's like, it's sort of like, you know, there's a standard conservative media criticism complaint that whenever a Democrat is, is uh, at the center of some scandal, um, you have to read the AP story to like the fifth paragraph to find out whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. But whenever it's a Republican, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the lead sentence. was sort of like that you know it was just sort of like you know you you read some of these chapters about some of these chapters of american history and you're like gosh i wonder who the president was you know in 1919 or whatever and i just remember look on my daughter's face she was like oh my god i didn't tell us any of that stuff and i was like yeah and look and i don't want you to do extra work just to um get in more trouble but you should know this stuff and uh anyway that all bothers me but I, i know i went way too long on that so i'll stop now Um, I gave that, uh, that speech in Dallas on Monday, you know, I am very hard on myself about speeches, particularly ones that matter to me. Um, you know, if I'm going to go speak to some trade association about what's going to happen in the midterms, I know how to do that. Um, and I doubt, you know, and I don't beat myself up over it if, you know, if, if it didn't go as well as I thought, I in part because it's very hard to sort of screw up those kinds of talks, but you know this thing that I did in Dallas, um, it mattered a lot to me, and I kind of made a classic mistake that um, I hate making, which is I overprepared for it, and because I, I took it too serious—I don't say I took it too seriously—but you know there's this weird thing where you, the more you actually put on, or I shouldn't say you, more I put down on paper for a speech, the more likely it is um that I am overthinking it. And so I probably put together um enough stuff for three different speeches, which led me to sort of do a very ruminant style um rant where I didn't really work from the paper very much at all. And um, um I hate that feeling. Uh the people seemed pleased. Lots of people came up and liked it and I got a nice response, but I, I disappointed myself quite a bit about it. Um but uh I now have fodder for um, a lot of pieces to um, write about or to talk about going forward, but it was great to go out to Dallas. I saw friends there. I saw, as I think I mentioned the other day, I saw Kevin Williamson out there, but one of the things I talked about, um, and I'm only bringing it up here because I brought it up on the dispatch podcast is this um, stuff about college campuses. And um, I wrote, on the Wednesday G file this week about the l a Times um, revelation about the l a city council members who had this racist conversation, I think you know it's it's fine. it's a very difficult thing to talk about uh, without screwing up and running afoul of sort of the cancel culture kind of themes in American life. but um I kind of love the story. Um, for those of you who don't know, three city council members, all Hispanic, one of whom's already resigned um, uh, Nuri Martinez, I think, is her name. They they were having a private conversation that was recorded, and they spoke in wildly uncharitable terms, and that's a euphemism for bigoted and racist terms about uh, black colleagues, about uh, a Oaxacan American, you know, a, a Mexican American of Oaxacan descent. They disparaged it um, pretty grotesquely. Um, they disparaged some colleagues some colleague who has a adopted, a white colleague who has an adopted black son. And I don't condone any of it. I don't talk like that in private. I don't think like that in private. That's not my point, nor does my heart bleed very much for the, the invasion of their privacy, although I think there's a real issue there. But I think one of the things it highlights that I find interesting is how um, the elite conversation about race is so abstracted and so disconnected from the reality of race on the ground. I mean, I hear things, you know, I hear, you know, black cops and black lawyers at my cigar shop say things in front of white people or in front of other black people or whatever that would cause your average kid at Yale uh, to soil their pants. I mean, like, and everyone understands the context. Everyone understands how, like, like, uh, this is not a um, reflection of any grand, deeper animosity or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's, you know, as one of the commenters reduced it to on the piece or on the podcast, I was just saw it, um, um, on the dispatch into locker room talk. That's not exactly what I mean, but it's fine. You know, it's, it, it's, it's part of the reality of how people in the real world talk. When I was a, when Trump was coming up and everyone was trying to say how racist he was, I think Trump is racist, you know? Um, but his racism feels very familiar to me because it's the kind of racism that you would hear a lot in 1970s, New York. Um, I, that doesn't forgive it, but it's not, you know, eugenic racism. It's not biological racism. It's not, you know, white supremacy stuff. It's the way he, you know, that, um, you know, Al Sharpton would talk about Jews and Whites. New York City had a, had a certain kind of Beirut quality to it, where you know, people, white you know, white guys would talk about the blacks and the Puerto Ricans, and the Puerto Ricans and the blacks would talk about the whites and whatever. Or it's funny, is like when my dad, you know, who was growing up in the thirties and forties, the way he talked about the Irish and the, the Italians, it was not it was no real bigotry in there. I mean, yeah, he had a problem with the Irish because the Irish would beat up the Jewish kids all the time, but you know, it wasn't like phrenology or anything like that. And my point is again, not to condone or dismiss, um, racism, particularly hypocritical racism from very left wing people who spout all the time about how racism is the worst thing in the world. You have a special obligation to sort of live by your own rhetoric. But my point is, is just simply that like this is very normal and natural for urban politics. There's a different, uh, this is a point I've, I've tried to make a bunch of times. There's a huge difference between ethnic politics and identity politics. Ethnic politics is unavoidable in large multicultural polities, right? And um, cities, even, you know, like, like the idea of multi-ethnic nations is It's not new, but it's new-ish. There were lots of multi-ethnic empires, um, but, you know, multi-ethnic nation is a... It's not... Again, it's it's, it's not new, but it's of more modern vintage, in part just because really big nations that could include lots of ethnicities is on the newer side in terms of... A more recent side in terms of history. But cities, which is my real point... Multi-ethnic cities go way back. You know, Rome was a multi-ethnic city. Uh, Jerusalem was a multi-ethnic city. Even Athens was to some extent a multi-ethnic city because cities rise up, big cities rise up because of trade and trade brings people from different places. You could find, there was like a, there was this Viking horde that was found in the UK a few years ago, um, like in York. Clearly some Viking raider guy had buried a bunch of his treasure to come back for and it, you know, it had, like, coins from, uh, from China and from, um, uh, from the Middle East. And, um, and it's because uh, Kiev, or Kiev, as we call it now, um, uh, which was a big Viking stronghold, was a slave trading center. And you would have people from all sorts of places. Anyway, cities have always, there are all, there have always been, or at least for a very long time, mo- since the time of Conan, uh, there have been multi-ethnic cities. And in multi-ethnic cities, you get essentially tribes. You get um, factions. Uh, the best example, the best illustration of this is basically any mob movie <laughs> or close to any mob movie of the last 75 years where, um, you know, or if you watch the HBO series Rome, you know, it's like the Collegia, Um they're not necessarily different ethnic groups, but they operate as sort of different houses or clans um, as do like the prominent families of ancient Rome. But in, you know, in modern mob movies or prison movies, it's the, you know, the, the, the lat you know, the, the, is the Italian mob or the, the black mafia or the, um, you know, even the Jewish mafia, um, the Irish gangs, you know, and they have turf, they have territory and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's kind of an analog to uh machine politics in major cities for most of the 19th and 20th century. And what I, again, I'm not condoning horrible language, but I guarantee you what the Irish said of the Italians and what the Italians said of the blacks and what the, what, what they all said about the Jews um, in sort of Tammany, New York was probably pretty bad too. And um it is sort of, in, it's an inevitable part of um, urban, uh, zero-sum po- political battles. I would prefer if people talked more pleasantly and all that kind of stuff. But the, the point is, is like the people on that phone call could have sanitized their conversation in terms of the bigotry and the, um, and the nast and the insults. And made the exact same arguments and they would have been normal left-wing urban politics, right? I mean, because it's like, this is how urban politics is done where you have different, I mean, it's not always ethnic groups. You know, I mean, uh, gays are not necessarily, or or I shouldn't say not necessarily, gays are not an ethnic group. But, you know, there are gay neighborhoods in New York that assert political clout. Um, There are certainly Jewish neighborhoods that assert political clout. And I know Jew kind of crosses lines between ethnic and religion and all that kind of stuff, but you get the point. There are, you know, places in America where sort of environmentalist type is the most, uh, you know, defining form of identity for people. You get weird NIMBY coalitions around schools because they're so tied up with property values. But anyway, in terms of ethnic politics, you know, if it's, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, um, um, Jimmy Carter, you know, uh, the sainted Jimmy Carter, he got into huge trouble can't remember if it was 76 or 80, but he got in huge trouble running for president talking about how various communities have, um, the right to protect their quote, ethnic purity. Um, and he had to walk it back, but, um, uh, you know, the Irish on this, in neighborhoods of Chicago or neighborhoods of Boston, um, they protect Irish businesses and sort of Irish, uh, residents in ways that are, you know, Typical of ethnic politics, um, identity politics is a different thing. Identity politics says that, um, first of all, it's, it's much more abstract, right? Ethnic politics is about people in specific communities and specific places with specific grievances and specific aspirations. You know, the, you know, blacks in Philadelphia, in a Philadelphia neighborhood, um, want specific things about schools or about getting certain stores or, Um, you know, development or whatever. That's a different thing than these sort of grand identity politics abstractions that um, reduce black people in Philadelphia, LA, Chicago, um, Southern Louisiana, and Ontario, Canada into a single identity, right? Without much particularity. Identity politics, is much more almost, I want to say, eugenic um, in the sense that it says there are black ways of knowing and black perspectives that um, are not mediated by class or culture or, or specific context. Um, it is a way to reduce large groups of people to a single identifier. And that's why I hate identity politics. I don't love ethnic politics, although I think some of it is quaint. But I also think that ethnic politics is inevitable in ways that identity politics are not. And so these guys on the L.A. City Council, they could have talked about, you know, redistricting and all of this kind of stuff with with nothing but kindness and sweetness and all the right, you know, accepted labels and euphemisms for various groups and various people but the substance of what they wanted wouldn't change at all and no one would be mad because or i mean no one i shouldn't say no one would be mad people who were going to lose in these uh these schemes might be mad but my point is is that like urban politics is about you know how many seats do we get on the liquor board right and it's very easy in urban politics when you're talking about ethnic coalitions or ethnic groups um that are rooted in specific communities to start denigrating ethnic groups in the adjacent communities because you're, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, no pun intended, but it's like color war, right? It's their team against our team. And only one can capture the flag. And I think that this is something that i that, that is so lost on a lot of the people who come out of these elite universities And this is, so I didn't talk about any of this in any detail in Dallas, but this part I did. So I'm a big believer, or I'm a, I shouldn't say a big believer, but I'm a a newfound appreciator of Marshall McLuhan. Um, Marshall McLuhan uh, made this argument uh, in this book, came out almost 60 years ago, called um, The Medium is the Message. And his point was how um, technology shapes the way um, we think about the world more than, oh, I should say more, often more than the content of the communication that technology affords, right? So like, the and I, I think it's really obvious when you think about it in terms of uh, sort of, you know, the iPhone revolution. If you just think about, or the smartphone revolution, if you think about how your life has changed since smartphones have come out in terms about, how you just think about your day, right? How you think about being in contact with your family. Um, how you think about if you have, you know, I have a kid in college on the West coast, my ability to communicate with her is just, and, and, and monitor what she's doing to some extent is just so wildly different than what my parents had v- with me. And I only went to school like 200 miles away. Um, I think that, uh, and then when you think about what, what, like Instagram and and Twitter have done to people's brains. There are all these books out about how the algorithm is rewiring our brains. Some of that stuff may be overstated, but some of it clearly isn't. And that's a very Marshall McLuhan kind of insight. But, you know, McLuhan goes deeper than that. He also points out, you know, which is is interesting because it's also a point that Heidegger makes that, you know, uh, while Heidegger does it about light, Uh, McLuhan does it about the light bulb. And the light bulb... Obviously, there's no content to the message of a light bulb, right? Unless you're using it for semaphore or something. But the message of the light bulb and how it transforms the way we think about our lives is really amazingly profound, right? It illuminates spaces that otherwise would be dark. Um, It affords us to have conversations or to read or to do things that um, we could not have done prior to the invention of the light bulb. It changes our conception of a big big chunk of reality. And I think what's interesting about this or what's relevant about this to my point about college campuses is that it would almost it almost would do better to think of college campuses as a form of technology, which they are. I mean like so like in a uh, in a certain mm-hmm. sense. An institution, and this is a point you've all loves to make, uh check your bingo cards, institutions don't just exist For people to hang out and feel like they belong to something, people create institutions to do things. You know, they didn't create the NAACP just to have meetings where everybody hangs out and complains about racism. America, they created the NAACP to, like, fight racism and organize and all that. You know, the Catholic Church is about community and communion and all that stuff. But it's also about saving souls, right? It's also about, you know, it has deliverables. Colleges, obviously, a big part of college life is that sense of community and all that kind of thing. But that is not the reason why we create colleges and universities. We create colleges and universities to educate people. And education is not um, um, necessarily filling people's heads with knowledge. If you go back and you read Brian Kaplan's book about, you know, um, the limits of college education, right? Um, uh, Most of the information you get in college, you either forget, um, or is irrelevant to the job you get because they're going to retrain you for the specifics of the job anyway. Um, less, a little less true, I would argue in STEM. And I think he would argue in STEM, but even so a lot of, you know, there's a real half life to a lot of that knowledge as well. Um, and the, but the broader point is, is that what, what a university education going back or, or, or college education is about teaching you how to think, not necessarily just what to know, you know, that's more K through 12, what to know. Um, but it's about how to think about things. Um, that's what the original liberal arts were all about to create the, the, the toolkits, um, the mental toolkits for people to, um, live in and protect a free society. Um, and I think that the technology for want of a better term, right. There's the institutional tech about universities is, um, doing a grave disservice to the, to the country, to the students themselves. And I should be very clear about this to liberalism or progressivism. And this was certainly much more true a hundred years ago than today, but it's still true today when you think about all of the woke stuff, when you think about all the diversity training, the DEI stuff, all of that, that is all a fancy modern way of talking about character formation, about teaching people what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, how to behave towards other people. It is a fancy and needlessly complicated way of teaching people manners. Um... Now, I disagree with them on the content of what constitutes good manners, but be that as it may, that's what it is. We just put a lot of fancy labels on it. We, we um, drench it in a lot of bad uh, social science and pseudoscience, um, but that's what it is. And, you know, 100 years ago, uh, if you went to some elite university, you were taught what fork to use at the eating club at Princeton, right? You were taught how to dress, how to behave, how to master the various shibboleths of elite life. And that's what universities are still doing today. They're just doing it wrong. And so like one of my, and people have heard me say this before, but screw it, you know, so I have two big critiques of the culture on American campuses. And I've been to a lot of American campuses. I'll be at Grove City College next week. But I have two, I have two major critiques. One is this idea. I think I talked about this on the Dispatch podcast the other day. This idea that being, progressive or left of center or liberal, whatever label you want to use is rebellious, right? That it is nonconformist in some significant way. And I always, I, I, I used to get some version of this claim from, you know, uh, angry college kids at talks I would give almost every single time, you know, about how they needed, you know, their role was to speak truth to power. And I was always like, okay, so let me get this straight. Uh, you agree with your professors, you agree with the administrators, you agree with the mainstream media, you agree with Hollywood, you agree with the publishing industry and the fashion industry and the music industry. Um, and yet you still think you're sticking it to the man by agreeing with them. And um, this would always ca- cause a certain amount of like, holy crap thinking among some kids who really did believe. That they were being nonconformist by conforming into conforming to the group think on college campuses. And then the other point, which gets more to the center of this thing about about character formation, is that at elite universities and elite colleges, and again, I know there are exceptions to this. There are listeners here who work three jobs, all that kind of stuff to put themselves through school, you know, the children of mailmen and all that. I'm not disputing that there are exceptions here, but we're talking about grand sweeping generalities here. And I'm the first to concede that. Um, I'm literally the first to concede it. I just said they're grand sweeping generalities, but if you spent any time talking to kids from elite universities, I spent a lot of time doing that. AI is full of them, has been full of them for years. Washington is full of them. And I've probably been to, I don't know, like a hundred campuses in the last 20 years. I've, 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 I've met a lot of these people and, um, One of the things that is sort of amazing to me, and it's much more amazing now that I'm actually writing checks for my own daughter's education, um, is how much these kids think they're independent. And um, I get why they think they're independent. They're away from home. They're in charge of their schedules and their social lives in ways that they haven't been before. But at the same time, their rent is paid for, their food is paid for, their f- people clean up after them. They don't wash dishes unless they're, you know, again, unless they're working their way through college in some way. Their dorms are, are, they're cleaned up after them. Their bathrooms are cleaned up after them. Their security is provided for them. Their utilities are paid for them. Everything is sort of covered except for, this sort of life of the mind and the life of sort of personal enrichment and flourishing. It is much closer in a lot of ways to a sort of fantasy vacation than it is to the real world. Um, you know, I'm not saying the college kids don't work. I mean, they're, they're doing what is asked of them, broadly speaking. My, my point is, is what, what happens to their character and their worldview because of what we're asking of? And on college campuses, first of all, they think that there is a, it is like a rite of passage. It is part, and there are lots and lots of college administrators who have said this openly, that like protest and political activism on campus is as much a part of um, the college experience as, as coursework or athletics, right? It is this sort of uh, role-playing As a protester is part of the fantasy vacation of college campus, right? You're supposed to get offended by something and then form a petition or organize a protest about it, right? And so there are kids, certainly not all of them, but a a significant number of them go into college hyper-attuned to look for these opportunities um, rather than, you know, wait for something that actually deserves outrage. To happen. It's everyone's on a hair trigger to be outraged by something. At the same time, the pedagogy and the social arrangements are all sort of wrapped up in this idea that the vaguest sense of bigotry, the vaguest sense of discrimination or um um or bullying or um uh, sexism or whatever, you know, the whole list. Um that if there's any hint of that that you just that the trigger gets pulled and you lose your mind. In that environment, we are training kids to see the world in a certain way. You add to that, um, I'm not going to get to this whole thing about how words are magic stuff, which I also talked about. Um, this new idea, it's not a new idea, it's actually an ancient friggin' idea. The idea that incantation and, and the right manipulation of words can change reality is one of the oldest superstitions of, of humanity. But we teach kids that if they can come up with a colorable argument, right, about why they're offended, that's good enough. It doesn't have to be a correct argument or a persuasive argument. If it merely captures your subjective feelings, uh, that's supposed to be enough because we live in this time where feelings sort of trump facts. And I know like Ben Shapiro likes to say, facts don't care about your feelings. But the facts lose a lot of these contests, because feelings don't care about the facts. And um, I think this is a big part about why, you know, free speech stuff is so problematic on college campuses is because it, it, in a climate of anything approaching free speech, someone's feelings are going to get hurt. And feelings are the one thing that, you know, trump all other considerations. And again, I'm speaking glibly at the end of an hour-long rant, but you get the point. And so, yeah, colleges teach bad things, They've always taught bad things. This has been a conservative complaint about universities forever. And let's be fair, when universities were much more conservative, they taught bad things then too. Universities will often teach wrong things. That happens. And sometimes those wrong things have really bad consequences. Fine, but that's not my argument. My argument is is that the character formation of universities is just really askew and not conducive to a robust, robust, self-confident civilization, never mind a patriotic United States, right? The sort of, you know, the, I mean, I, I, I've written lots about how I think Howard, the Howard Zinn stuff is wrong and bad on the merits, but I think it is worse because it, it jibes with this, this way we form character on college campuses to tell people that... Um, you are obliged that is a, it is a sign of good character to hate your own country's past, to question its past, to, to root around and look for proof that it's bigoted and wrong. Um, this is how you get attention in class. The more novel the argument is about why we're bad to the point where you come up with garbage like the 1619 Project, that is, these are the sorts of people that we're producing. And they, they go immediately into all sorts of um elite positions, you know, at the entry level usually in America. I mean, I would argue that that American, you know, the, the bulk of American media, um certainly elite media, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post, these are essentially like post-grad paid internships for life. Because the attitudes and um expectations and framings that people internalize in college are extended like one giant faculty lounge into the university. I mean, and into the, you know, into the media. Um, And I think that this is a really profound problem is that, you know, again, I do the Yuval shtick on institutions all the time. Institutions mold character and the way universities are molding character is bad. Um, And I'm not saying that being anti-racist is, or being not, you know, telling people you can't be racist is bad. That's fine. You can do that within the liberal arts tradition. You can do that within the Christian tradition. You can do that within a lot of different traditions. Um, you don't have to buy whatever, you know, Ibram X. Kendi's latest BS project is to say, don't be a racist, don't be a bigot. And so, anyway, getting back to the LA Council part, my point isn't just that we're um, teaching, you know, that locker room talk is bad. Um, and that, you know, we're a whole, and that, that college, these snowflakes are, are triggered by it. That's not, that's not my point at all. What I like about the LA council story is that it so shatters, it, not it shatters because these things are going to live on beyond this, but it, it runs against so many of these abstractions about, you know, how, you know, there are I mean, there are, there are people who teach classes and write books who claim that black people can't be racist. There are people who say that, you know, um, any instances that look like racism, and, I, and it's already starting to bubble out. I heard some of this on NPR this morning. You know, anything that looks like bigotry um, among people of color or, or oppressed groups, um, historically oppressed groups or whatever the right, stupid idiotic labels we use these days are, any of those kinds of things, you know, that, um, involve intersectionality and whatever. Um, ultimately they're all because of the racism of, of the pale penis people. And, um, that it all boils down to the, um, um, the stresses imposed by, um, the patriarchy and white supremacists and yada, yada, yada. And that's just, just, it's just not true. You know, it's like, again, by all means, condemn what these people said, by all means, that you know, make them all resign. I, I really couldn't care. Um, but the idea that like black people can't be bigots, that Hispanic people can't be bigots, that bigoted is, 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 is just obvious nonsense. Um, and you know, you can create any, as many cathedrals of words and phrases you want to say that bigotry absence political power um, is different because really what racism is is about institutional power. I know all those arguments. It's all nonsense. Um, and it's particularly nonsense because in this context of the city council thing, the people with power were the ones on the phone call. And they were trying to protect the power of, of, of Latino political interests and politicians against other groups. You know, this was the president of the LA City Council on this call. Um, and, uh, and that doesn't make these people like Uncle Doms or any of that kind of stuff. It's just, this is just what politics is like. And when, when you get zero-sum fights about uh, power and, and resources, it's just very easy to descend into nasty us-versus-them ugliness. And I'm not defending the ugliness. But, um, I think that this is a useful reminder to, um, a lot of people that outside of, you know, the MSNBC green room and the Slack channels at the New York times life is just, uh, much, you know, the, the ecosystem is much yeastier and much more interesting and much more thriving and much more diverse. Um, and that people will surprise you and that the real world does not hinge entirely on, um, coming up with various weird postmodern, um, uh, word salads. Um, but it's about contests over, over power and resources. And, um, and those, those rules in politics are rules for humans, um, and they don't really change based upon whether or not you're a part of one abstract category or another abstract category. And so, I, I, I don't know, I just find this thing kind of refreshing. And, um, and I got, again, no pun intended. I got no skin in this game. Um, I don't live in L.A. Um, I don't know much about L.A. politics. I mean, I do write a column for the L.A. Times, and you know, in L.A. is a entirely liberal and Democrat dominated city as far as I can tell, although that may change in the mayoral election. I hope it does. But I just think like this sort of thing is, is just part and parcel of normal politics in ways that the people so distant from the ground just don't understand um, or don't pay attention to, you know um, not everything is um, some abstract Woke debating society. Um, some of it is just sort of real world stuff. And um, anyway, so I'm I'm rambling at this point. Thank you to everybody for your patience for the redesign stuff. I mean, the reason the migration stuff. I, I say redesign because it's um, it's a very similar experience migrating from one place to another as it is to redesigning websites. And I went through a lot of redesigns um, at NRO, and I. Um, I still have a kind of PTSD about it. Um, And this one, obviously not everything went perfectly, but we knew nothing, you know, this would not go perfectly, but it seems like most of, not all, most of the problems have been on our side of the curtain. And that for most people, not all, um, the transition has gone pretty well. Uh, If you have any problems whatsoever, um, and you're a member of the Dispatch community, um, you can send an email to me, um, or you can send it straight to uh, members at thedispatch and we will get on it. Um, we're trying very hard to be as responsive, as quickly and as 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 satisfactorily as possible. And I should be clear, you know, even if even if you don't get a response, you should get a response. Um, but even if you don't get a response. All of those emails are definitely read and, and acted upon, um, you know, if they're in, if they're good faith, real complaints or problems, but they're all read. And, you know, we're very excited about the migration. There are still lots of things to work out. Um, um, I been poking around in the back end, and it's, um, I got a lot of learning to do about this. Like I, I, I didn't publish my pieces myself under the old substack system but um um i knew how to do it i this this whole thing now is like code in the matrix as far as i can tell other than that i feel like there was something else i'm supposed to announce or tell you guys but it's not like i lack for opportunities to tell you next week if you could become um a member of the dispatch community this would be a great time to do it we're we're growing fast. We're going to have, oh, well, that's what I was going to tell you. Um, we kind of have a, a sort of a de facto tradition at this point um, that Steve and I do like this annual what's going on with the dispatch thing, which we use as a, which we do as a remnant or we've done as a remnant. We'll, that's coming soon. Send your questions. If there are things you want to know there, you know, just realize that there's some things I'm not going to tell you. Like there are lots of people who want to know about like my partic- my specific peeves with specific people or what the real story about this and that falling out is. And like, sometimes there's a reason why, you know, uh, people don't talk about that stuff in public. It doesn't mean that your theory is correct. It just means that, um, there's nothing to be gained by like getting into a lot of those kinds of things. Oh, uh, on that front, I haven't listened to it yet, but apparently Tim Miller and, uh, Sarah Longwell, um, did not like uh, my uh, comments last week, I guess, based on the Ben Sass thing. Um, from what people have told me that they said, I don't want to get into it. I just don't think it's worth anybody's time. Um, beyond me just simply saying, I think that there are a lot of people. I don't want to make this particularly about them. I don't I don't know Sarah well. I, like she's a good person as, from everything I know. I like Tim Miller. I don't know him all that well either, but we've met you know, a few times he's been to my house. Um and I like the guy. Um, but I think, you know, I think there's, you know, we talk about this in foreign policy a lot where people um where one of the dangers in foreign policy is for foreign policy makers to uh they call it mirroring. They assume that the people in other countries think the way they do. And then they make their decisions based upon what they, what, how they would respond to their actions because they think the other, their, their, their opponent thinks the same way. And, um, you know, mirroring has come up a lot in the context of, of Putin's screw up with Ukraine. Um, I think this is something, and this is something that I, that I should probably talk about at greater length another time, but I think, I think Bill Kristol's guilty of this. I think Tim is guilty of this. Um, maybe Sarah's guilty of this. Um, sorry Longwell. Um, I think there are a lot of people out there who see the world a certain way, and particularly if they've been involved in actual day-to-day politics, as campaigners, as you know as, as comms people, as um strategists and all that kind of stuff, and they assume that the people that they disagree with on stuff in these kinds of contexts think the same way um, about politics. Now, I've always, you know, again, Bill Kristol is a friend of mine. I'm not going to throw him under the bus or anything, and I'm not going to say anything I haven't said or written many times before. But, you know, Bill's approach to politics was never mine. I did not, you know, um, I never ran a political campaign. I never worked in an administration. Um, I never formed or worked with any packs or any of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I can, I've always just considered myself a writer and, um, uh, and so I don't approach a lot of these questions the way I think people like Bill do, which is they want to be part of the game and I don't begrudge them. You know, people can pick their own lifestyles and their own choices. That's fine. Um, but I will say, and this is not a criticism of any of those guys, even though I think they are guilty of this the way, I mean, the criticisms I get from that crowd are like, they, you know, I, I keep hearing people say, well, people, you know, I keep hearing people say that I, I, I want to maintain my relevance or be thought well of by, you know, Republicans these days. Um, and it's just like, that's projection. I mean, I, I like th- this idea that like, those are my motives. Um, is, is, uh, not based upon any testimony or actions from me. It is people projecting their way of thinking about politics on me as far as I can tell. Now, maybe I'm misreading them. That's fine. But that's how it reads to me. All I know is I am a much better expert of my own motives than any of my critics. And, um, um but I do think, and this is, this is a very serious point, And again, Long-time listeners of this podcast know this is not a new point of mine. I think that one of the big problems with conservatism in general, uh, with conservatism in particular, but journalism in general, is that too many people, both on the reporting side and on the sort of analysis, opinion side, have internalized this idea that if you're a conservative you're supposed to be thinking about what the Republicans can do to win, right? Um, Or uh, if you're a liberal, you're supposed to be thinking about what is the best framing for Democrats to win. And I think this seeps into a lot of people's coverage um, that it's supposed to be objective as well. And um, I will say one of the things I like about opinion journalism more than straight repertorial journalism is at least opinion journalists are honest about their um, priors to a certain extent. But if you're claiming to be a purely objective reporter um, and you buy all of the framing from sort of liberal pundits, um, and you buy what sort of uh liberal pundits claim is the real issue and this, that, or the other thing, but then you report it, you know, quote unquote straight, um, you are, you know, by proxy doing left-wing punditry under the Trojan horse of being a straight reporter. And I think that happens a lot. That explains a lot of liberal media bias. And, but regardless, this has been my long... I mean, I, just, I was just talking to my friend Jim Garrity on this podcast a couple of weeks ago about this, about how, you know, how I f- try myself to stop saying we when referring to like Republicans, um, oh, we'll pick up whatever seats. I I try real hard not to to think in those terms. And um and I think there there are a lot of people who still think in those terms who assume that that I do as well. And you know, and like and I just admitted, I sometimes do, but it's usually lapses in language more than anything else. What I try really hard not to do is to be a political player, to be in the mix, to be letting those kinds of calculations affect what I say and what I write or how I think about these things. And if you, you know, if you just read Bill Kristol's tweets, um, he's very much the same guy he always was. Um, but he wants Democrats to win and, um, you know, and he's part of that mix and he, um, and that's great. That's fine. He's free to do that. He, you know, that's, that's a perfectly legitimate strategy for, um, someone who's, you know, part of the time a political activist, um, at a very high level, but you know, he is, and, um, what I, but that's not me. I don't want to do that. And I personally, you know, it's funny. I, you know, Bill, a couple of months ago, you know, had some tweet about how the new deal was okay or something like that. And, um, sometimes he talks about abortion stuff, um, in ways that you would think that he hadn't been a pro-lifer for a very long time. Um, and I don't want to do that. I, my old point is, is like, I believe the things I believe, whether they are convenient to the right or not. And I feel like I made a pretty good living and had a pretty good life saying the things I believe to be true when that also was lined up with the interests of the right and conservatives. And I feel kind of like I, would, I have an obligation now to keep making those arguments, even though the ground has shifted out beneath me. And so, I mean, take this New Deal stuff. I've been talking about how the New Deal was bad for, for 20 years. I've been writing about it. I, it used to be a staple conservative position. There are now a bunch of these sort of post-liberal nationalist, whatever, right-wingers who have suddenly fallen in love with the New Deal. Um, I'm not going to start saying, oh, the new deal was great now because of the rise of common good conservatism or whatever garbage label we're going to put on it. Um, I've always, I used to get enormous amounts of grief about being too nuanced in my, uh, you know, I used to say I'm essentially pro-life for reasons I've talked about a bunch, t- bunch of times here. Um, but I would never go full declare pro-life cause I'm, you know, I, I am squeamish at some of the margins about this stuff. But I always said I am very much anti-Roe. Uh, and, um, and I am so grateful that I was willing to take the grief I took from some of my pro-life friends back in the day because it turns out that my nuanced thought-through position about this stuff is perfectly well-suited to keep me consistent in the current con- post-Dobbs context. And, you know, that's sort of what, I mean, the, this podcast is called The Remnant for a reason. Um, And I can only point people to like Albert J. Nock and and all that stuff, you know, so many times. But the whole, you know, the whole Isaiah's job thing, um, which, you know, this is the essay that Albert J. Nock wrote for The Atlantic in the 1930s that sort of establishes this idea of the remnant, is that I'm trying to speak to people who are not caught up in the passions and frenzies of the particular partisan populist moment that some things, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to be, and I, I, I really am trying really hard not to be some sort of sanctimonious prick about it. Um, cause I have lots of friends and people I love who are much more caught up in the game. People I respect. I mean, I respect Bill Kristol. He's caught up in the game and I'm, I'm not, and this makes me seem naive, or it makes my motives seem weird to people. And um, um, and all I can say is, look, and I would say I'm not caught up in the game. I'm trying not to be caught up in the game because sometimes it's hard. Um, I I have not gone, Jen Rubin, and just simply switched teams and abandoned everything I ever believed in um, or claimed to believe in uh, for clicks. Um, and you know, I look around at what is happening to chunks of the right. And I criticize it, criticize it all the time because it breaks my heart. And um, I don't think it's good for conservatism. And I think it's ba- affirmatively bad for the country. And, um, but, you know, part of my day job is to be a pundit, is to do political analysis. And I, you know, I am not going to say that I think, you know, Ben Sass is something I don't believe him to be uh, because Ben Sass didn't fight Trump the way a bunch of people who who, who dislike Trump as much as I do um, wanted him to. You know, not buying into your strategy doesn't make you an intellectual coward or traitor. It may make you wrong, and I'm totally open to arguments that people are wrong. I'm totally open to arguments that I'm wrong. But um, a little less moralizing about how you know, that, that unless you're all in on a specific strategy to fight Trumpism and all of this, or you're a quizzling of some kind, um, would be nice. And, um, anyway, I'm done. Maybe we'll move this little rant further in because I was trying to get out of here. I'm sorry, Dom, for going long and, um, uh, everyone have a great weekend and I'll talk to you later. Blah 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 blah. I know Adama's gonna try to keep that in there. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Ah, in my dentist's office.